He's doing handstands again, our Maze K. Four, five, and to the applause of the crowd, he draws right away. Untested, Philip Mercer has got a real handful of the sensation on his way to Sydney. Good luck. Castletown's giving a sight here. Castletown ranged up to Newbury Star. Placid over between them. Starring is now starting to run on, but he's hit the front. Castletown, he's a length clear on Placid What a wonderful line talking about the old freak, Castletown, Tony Lee. Wonderful broadcast. And I said this morning on social media when we were getting Tony on that certain callers, and we've said this for so long, they can make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. And he's got that ability, Tony Lee. And But the curtain's coming down on a wonderful calling career. Almost four decades tomorrow when he calls his final Wellington Cup. So it was good that we played Castletown there winning his third. He had 102 starts that horse for 16 wins and over uh, almost two million for Paddy Bussett. And of course, and he was by one pound sterling, the old war horse Castletown. But it's a pleasure to talk to Tony Lee. How are you, Tony? Good morning. I'm well, thank you. Yeah, that would um, bring back a lot of memories and a fair bit of, fair bit of mo- emotion for you, I'd imagine, too. Yeah, yeah, massive amount actually. So uh, he was 30 years ago, um, the great Castletown or Mac, Lake Castletown, we should say. He's, he has passed on, but yeah, what a horse. You know, when you have a look through that record, it'll be 16 wins. How many runs he had over 3,200 metres? Uh, and as you will know, the, uh, the energy sapping training alone to get ready for those races is amazing. And he stepped out in so many of them. He's just a wonderful sound and kind and generous horse. He loved the wet tracks too, and Noel Harris had a great rapport with him. Yeah, for sure. He did, as he did with many, Noel. He had, uh, he had magic hands, you know. And, um, you know, that day that he won his third, he won two, then he missed, and then uh, along came that race. And, it was, you know, it wasn't expected. It wasn't expected, but uh, he got there, and uh, Rod Stewart and Rachel Hunter, married at the time, uh, they were the special guests, and there was 20,000 people on course on a beautiful upper hut day, and... Yeah, it happened, it happened, and uh, to be part of that energy of so many people and uh, adoration of one thing is, uh, is a huge, uh, huge energy, and it was very special to be part of. And that line, was that something, you said it was a bit of a surprise when it wasn't expected, but that wonderful line you produced at the end of the call there, the dream burst into reality. Yeah, well, I, I try not to, um, I, I might have thought about that the year before, and it, of course didn't happen, so then you've got to concentrate on what actually <laughs> is happening and uh, so I try not to have any of those ready to go uh, as such, you know, just at, at the moment and yeah, I dragged it out. Actually, the race call was a little bit patchy but that last bit was good and that's the bit they've remembered and that's the bit they picked up on and actually uh, uh, kick-started my career in the credibility stakes, I would think, and, uh, and, and it went from there, so forever grateful. And just a, a buzz, you know, you mentioned the crowd, Rod Stewart, Rachel Hunter, just for you to broadcast to that massive crowd. And then the post-race chatter as well. You know, you must have been just yeah. running on adrenaline, Tony. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it was absolutely running on adrenaline. And, um, uh, yeah, just, uh, you know, we, we get carried away. I'm a, I'm, well, I don't know if you call me an emotional. I do run on emotion, actually, and I call on, on emotion. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's 
as much as anyone else was, I was sitting there unashamedly crying, standing there unashamedly crying once it all uh, come back to scale and yeah, just uh, just fantastic scenes. You've caught so many good horses. I mean, we heard some of them there, like our Maze Cave was one of my favourites. But, you know, you think about excellent Melody Bell, Starcraft, Princess Cope. We heard old Sir Slick for Graham Nicholson. He wasn't a, yeah. you know, he wasn't a superstar, but boy, he was <laughs> tough, wasn't he? He was a great, you know, he was a really unorthodox sort of trainer as well, Graham Richardson. Yeah. Well, Nicholson, I'm sorry. Yeah, Nicholson, that one. Uh, he was, he was, and uh, you know, he used to tell the story then. Well, of his, you know, he might have had one or two horses only in work at that point, and including that warrior. Um, and he just didn't break the losers. Like he took him all around the world as well. He, you know, he had patchy form sometimes, but he came back to it, and the people loved him. They loved him, and they loved the stories that uh, Graham Nicholson told. Uh, he, he reckoned that they'd put the float door down, and the horse would get on there himself when he was ready to go to the races. So uh, there were many, many things uh, involved uh, there, and uh, you know he was he was just one of those uh, wonderful horses, a glamour horse, a Starcraft. What a, a physique of an animal, you know. He was a colt or or a stallion, and um, you know just the way he walked around with his uh, coat of red shining away there, and uh, his handler doing uh, everything with him there, is, and then he, when he powered up with that big reaching stride with all that power, he just uh, dragged you in. You just wanted to be part of him, and he was. He was so impressive uh, in the middle day of that uh, carnival. He did get beaten in the big one by Kevin Myers, so, or Dummy Myers as we call him, Bell Muse. So when, uh, he was like the hardest favourite that we've ever had for that race. And Kevin Myers was a cagey customer, but a, a brilliant horseman, and uh, he, you know he, he wouldn't done too many best fresh competitions but that day he had bought a new suit so he knew something in the horse paid I think 25 so <laughs> I don't know if he bought another time just after that but they didn't wind him off anyway so yeah, yeah no special, special moment yeah, so, we, sure. we, we love that Spring Triple Crown every year at Hawke's Bay. You know, the 1400s all had all different names over the years. Then the Mile, it used to be the Celt Stakes 2000. But is that your favourite track to call at, that Hawke's Bay or Hastings facility? Yeah, it, look, it's very good. It's very good. And uh, uh, the position there to call is good. Uh, the horses are back and high and, uh, from the track. And, uh, you know, they, they, they sort of walk at you the last little bit so you get time to sort them out if you at a track that you're close to the outside rail and not very high, you can't get a, a, a proper line-up on them. You know, it's a little bit deceptive. So, yes, Hawke's Bay is very good. Uh, uh, Trentham is, uh, is very Most of them are actually really, really good. So, um, back in the days when there was Radio Pacific, when we had two broadcasts on, on track, uh, and uh, one of those, we were putting some pretty funny old positions because of an afterthought. But you got used to sorting, sorting it out and trying to, you know, get the angle right or however we did it. And, and went from there. So, but uh, but Trentham in the summer is as now uh, that track is just incredible. If it's a good day, and a very fair fair track as well. So big that they get a good chance to have a all have a line up and dash for the cash. You know, you still that dog leg, didn't it? Or it's still got the dog leg, has it? Mm, it has actually. Uh, you know, they've sold bits of it off. Uh, I actually can't see the start of those twelve hundred really? meter races. No, I've got to go with the telly pictures there. So, which is pretty good in my eyes anyway. But. Uh, yeah, no, it's just uh, uh, selling bits of it off there, and uh, it's uh, unsighted for me at the start. Always a little bit nervous because you can't, you know, you like to uh, form in your mind uh, the field, you know, for the, for those races when they're behind the barriers, and yeah, when you can't see them, it's just a little worry that you're going to get it wrong. So, Tony, what tracks did you principally call at throughout your career? We talked about Hawke's Bay and Trentham, but what are some of the other tracks that you covered? What area did you cover in New Zealand? So we've got an area, actually, yes, and mine was the lower half of the North Island and Gallops only. They make them all tri-code now, but uh, mine, I've only 
has the ability to develop us. I don't know enough about the others to do them any service. But uh, so um, so you're from Gisborne on the east coast uh, across to New Plymouth on the west coast and down to Wellington. So sort of that area there is a few chase to get over and, and some interesting ones there. There's a place called uh, Wairoa, which is just um, maybe an hour uh, south of, of Gisborne and it's uh, just a little settlement. They had a, they don't race there now, but uh, they certainly did. And it was a real community uh, event there. They'd all come along on that uh, second day, the cup day, and there'd be umbrellas and the whole community was there, barbecues going. And when I first went there, I had to uh, stand just outside of the, uh, the members uh, as it was, as there on a, on a bit of wood and under their flag and uh, Osh came along which was a safety, safety, health and safety and um, so we can't do that anymore so <laughs> yeah, it, was, uh, it was interesting, like, it was uh, heart, uh, you know, heart, real heartland racing and, uh, and you know, uh, I'm saddened we've lost that a little bit because uh, as part and parcel of the fabric here, you know, after all horse racing started off with uh, one person saying to another one that my horse can be your horse and it's gone from there to paddocks to these wonderful venues that we do have now and uh, yeah, no, I've been very, very lucky. I have called at other uh, jurisdictions as well, uh, but in New Zealand I called Alice a bit and uh, they, uh, they've got that nice, wonderful new facility now. Uh, I've called the Melbourne Cup, I called uh, Maccabi Diva's first Melbourne Cup wow. for a new, Is new that, Zealand audience. Which network yeah. was that for back then and how many callers were up there at Flemington? Uh, I think there was three. It was uh, Radio Pacific, it was four, and uh, um, they had to take a tour to the Melbourne Cup and they had a couple of seats, so they decided to see if uh, I wanted to go and call the race I did and, uh, and the derby there. But, yeah, it was special. Um, I met uh, you know, Greg Miles, I think he was calling then, and uh, a couple of others who were around about Al Thomas. There was a guy that used to call, but he did mainly jockey, um, uh, jockey uh, bookings and things like that, because he, when the light went on, he couldn't talk. He just had a, you know, it was a mental health problem for him, but a very nice man indeed. So that made me very welcome, and it was, yeah, it was special. I don't know if I did a great job, but it was good to be able to call her and say that I did. And Tony, your hometown, where is that in New Zealand? So I live in a place called Foxton, which is um, 25 minutes out of Palmerston North, towards where uh, towards the seaside, where there's Foxton and Foxton Beach. So you were on that coast there, on that west coast, and... Um, pretty good location for me to uh, to go to work, uh, you know, around about with the various tracks. It's, it was it's not too far, not too uh, testing to drive. So just a small community here. I think there's two and a half thousand. It swells in the summertime with the beach naturally enough. But uh, yeah, so so that's where I am, and that's where actually Castletown was trained, and uh, actually the second horse Torbo uh, was also trained here. So uh, it's a it's a it's a place that. It's special for me in racing. There's a big photo of Castletown actually down on the village there on, a, on, a, on the old Foxton Racing Club building, which isn't the Foxton Racing Club building use-wise anymore, but uh, they have respected with uh, Castletown, a massive big photo. So I go down and, and uh, say good on you, mate. Thank you for what you did for me before today, and, uh, and we go from there. Tony, I was chatting to you off air because that brings back a lot of memories for me, Radio Pacific, because one of my jobs in the very early days before Sky, when I was outside the studio in the control room on a Friday, we'd say, oh, well, there's a Group 1 race tomorrow, the, the Telegraph. I need to ring Radio Pacific because it's due to jump at 3 o'clock. So we'd had this big, long number. <laughs> you get through to a, a panel operator there at Radio Pacific. He'd say, I'll put you, I said, it's Steve from Australia. Um, he put me on hold, and that's how we'd get the program. And then we'd, we'd, 
we take the races. But what was interesting, and I've said this before, where, you know, a lady could be talking about a sore back or, you know, that she can't grow cactus or something. And then the next minute there'd be a little little jingle and off to the races. And uh, it was really interesting yeah. in those days. You know, and we, we've come a long way, haven't we? Oh, we certainly have. Uh, you know, like Radio New Zealand had the call, had the broadcast rights, I suppose, if you want to know it, called it that way, back in those days. And the local radio uh, station would play uh, the double and the last leg of the treble or something like that. And uh, and then Radio Pacific came along, which was just uh, for an Auckland audience, really. Um, uh, Jim Smith and Patty O'Donnell were the two that sort of got it going. And they ended up winning the contract to call races. So and I just happened to be on, on their their team, if you like, of, uh, of callers, and you know, luck's a fortune. If it was on the other way, it, uh, yeah, it might not have been heard from again. So uh, certainly, fate—the fickle finger of fate, Steve, takes its place mm. sometimes. I should have sat, said it correctly when I used to ring. I used to say Radio Pacific. I used to yeah. say Pacific. <laughs> <laughs> Tony, yeah, just back to the early really days, good. because I understand your family were in, had a big farm. Did they a dairy farm? A little farm, actually. It was one of those uh, like. Um, after the wartime, uh, the Second World War, there were ballot farms uh, from the government and Dad was lucky enough to draw a ballot and get a small farm. Like there was, I think it was 70 or 80 acres or something like that and a small dairy herd there. So, yeah, and that wasn't far from where I'm living today. It was probably about a 1,500 metres as a crow flies. So I'm sort of from around these parts, as they say. We had some great race caller profiles on the air the past couple of weeks. Chris Barsby, our main harness caller, he was telling us how he used to live at Redcliffe and he'd hear the PA, the calls at the trots, which were nearby, the Redcliffe trots, and it ignited something inside him to call. And Craig Rail, who's now calling over your way, he was here at this studio for many years, and he said him and his brother Brett who works at Racing Queensland, would call golf balls in the pool and running, you know, they do form guides yeah. and all this sort of thing, coloured golf balls. I mean, with you, it was your brother, was it, that instigated this calling yeah. for you or the interest in racing? Yeah, it was, uh, and uh, sadly past uh, last year. Um, but, yeah, very, very important. Yeah, I was, he, he had eight years on me and he was keen on the horses and uh, so I, we, we didn't know too much about it. We, I, I had an interest, I suppose, that, uh, you know, had a favourite jockey, a little fella called Noel Eastwood, but I didn't know why he was my favourite jockey, but he, he was. And, um, yeah, so we used to go around the, the various uh, tracks there to the races, and I'd, uh, I'd tag along with Craig there and, and learn a little bit as we went and try and get into Trentham. I think it had a 14-year-old, uh, you know, he couldn't get into the main part unless you were over 14, and I'd chewing gum and put my jersey over my shoulders trying to look a bit up or older <laughs> to try and get in and then he'd leave me in the queue, you had to queue up and have a bet way back then and he'd want to take a double or a whatever, win place of a separate queue so I'd be in the queue there waiting and petrified that I was getting pretty close to the start of it now and then I'd be told off for being not of age but uh, anyway we got away with it all and he'd turn up just at the last minute and we had, uh, we had a lot of fun, we had a lot of fun, we didn't have any money but we had a lot of fun. Yeah, you were saying, I watched a, a little segment this morning where you said it was very tough and, you know, um, you know, to make ends meet back in those days for the family. Yeah, 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 it was, you know, and, and I don't know if we were desperados or whatever, but uh, we certainly didn't go with a, with a heap of it. And, um, you know, even to a stage where they used to put jugs of milk on the tables in the public cafeteria, would go and drink a jug of milk. So we didn't have to buy, buy some food, so we... Had another dollar to bet with an effect, so yeah, we were, we were pretty keen. Yeah. So how did you go then from going to the races, but then getting this this interest in the calling? I mean, were you doing phantom calls at the races, or when you got home, or? No, I, yeah, it just sort of happened, really. Um, 
I was working in uh, as a sound recordist for a uh, crew at uh, television or TV2. It used to be back in those days. and So I was a little bit around the broadcasting. I thought I wouldn't mind trying it a bit, but I, I, I mumbled all the time. I didn't speak very clearly. So I went and got some lessons from a, a, a man, uh, Hubert Humphrey was his name. Oh, he um, sounds fancy. Yeah, <laughs> Hubert Humphrey. Fancy, <laughs> Hubert, Hubert Humphrey. So and he was uh, very encouraging, and uh, you know I, I spoke posh for a little while, and um, just to get the, the hang of it all. And so yeah, then when I got when I got the diction right, and uh, then I had uh, uh, to try and find somewhere that I could call races, and there was nowhere. I wasn't getting much help either, to be fair. The ones that were here weren't uh, weren't that keen to let me have a, a lesson or whatever. So I used to go along to the Hut Park trots, which are now no more. Um, at the Half Park Raceway there and on the roof with my binoculars and a tape recorder. And I'd call the races there uh, into the tape recorder and then Enthusiasm got me a couple of interviews to do on the uh, 2ZB, which is the Wellington uh, Radio New Zealand station. And uh, when the trucks were coming up, they would play these interviews with trainers or whatever and uh, just a little sound bite. So all for free. And, uh, and then um, one of the main, well, the main caller in the land, uh, Peter Kelly, had bad health and Alan Bright used to call the uh, trots at that point, and it, then he wouldn't be able to because he was off calling a galloping meeting somewhere. So it really didn't have anyone. And I thought, oh, so Freddie popped up in the porridge, and they said, all right, let's have a go. And I was hopeless. I was hopeless. Well, yeah. Why were you hopeless? Yeah. Oh, I was going too fast. Like uh, maiden trotters don't go that fast, but I had them going telegraph pace into the first corner. It was the night that Anthony Buck actually had his first ever drive. He was a grandson of the uh, wonderful Derek Jones. And so, uh, yeah, when Anthony Buck started driving, his first night driving was the first night that Tony Lee uh, called races. So, so yeah, how did you get better at it? Did someone get, you know, pull, pull you by the, you know, sort of say, listen, you need to slow down? Or was it your own worst critic? Or what, what, how did you, you perfect your art of calling? Yeah, they did. I got drilled, actually. They said, you can't carry on like that, you know. Like, I'd get... When, when you're broadcasting, if you go to a, a crescendo way early, it's hard to hold that for the next sort of 800 metres of a race. So, and Noah's running out of puff and getting it a bit wrong. And, uh, yeah, they said, look, you just got to drag it back. And uh, um, at that stage, I didn't have a lot of confidence, one of those people that didn't really believe in myself. Uh, and Keith Hobbs sort of took me under his wing a little bit and Grant Nisbet and people like this. Uh, and, and from there... I got uh, I got a, a little bit better at it as well as it became a bit better in things in life. So uh, yeah, I was only in my early twenties at that point. Okay, and were you were you broadcasting on the radio back then? It was just on course at, at Hut Park. Uh, the, the the practice on the roof was uh, just just me into that, but then uh, when I got the gig to call the races, that was broadcast on uh, on uh, Radio New Zealand and. Uh, um, yeah, it's, and, and, and it went from there. And a, and a good mate of mine, Paul Anderson, used to sit beside me a bit about the trotters. And um, he said, we'd sit there in a line. There was a technician, there was me, and there was a mate beside me. And the microphone's right in front of me, but not a, not on a headset one. And so I could hear what was uh, about to cross over. And um, <laughs> it was near the, the last race, I think it was, uh, for the result. And uh, my mate was just adding up all his uh, night's uh, wagering. And just, he was about... Uh, six inches or a foot away from uh, the microphone just how we were jammed in there and he swore and he said bleep 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 I've lost 500 tonight right <laughs> so that was going to air yes <laughs> yeah so uh, just funny little things like that and um but but from there I got uh, sort of 
into the family of those broadcasters, I suppose, and uh, and they helped me greatly. They yeah. they really helped me greatly because I didn't know what I was doing. It was self-taught. It wasn't a proper job. Yeah, this actually. is what I was going to ask because I think we, we, I've talked you know, about this before. I think a lot of our listeners, you know, as youngsters would have, or during their teens or whatever, that love racing would attempt to call as well, but, you know, um, didn't have the gift. But when did you know that you could get these colours into your head fairly quickly? Did you always have a good memory with things like that? Um, I don't know that I did really. Uh, I got there eventually. Uh, Peter Kelly was a wonderful caller here. He had uh, what I call magic in his voice. You know, he could, he just, he could look sure, lift the crowd, and uh, make a race uh, seem amazing. Um, and so I sort of tried to get along. That he was a sing-song type of caller, but uh, when I wasn't getting much help here, I took myself off to Sydney. Actually, I went to Harold Park, and I managed to elude the security, which I've done a few times in my life, Steve. But the um, <laughs> and got right to the top and there was these boxes on the top of the stand there and I didn't know who was who or what was what so I just knocked on one and it was Ian Craig actually that was uh, there and I said, uh, g'day, I'm who I am and what I wanted to do and I hadn't started calling properly at that point and uh, he said, come on son and, he, and oh, he just looked after me for the whole night and took a genuine interest and uh, yeah, what a nice man. What a nice oh, man. absolutely. Yeah, just a... You know, that era was just so good, wasn't it? You know, we had Wayne Wilson in. I remember we talk about three-way turf talk, which was an every Saturday on the radio with Wayne and Ian Craig and Brian Martin or Bill Collins and Ron Paps and all those wonderful yeah. broadcasters yeah. during that particular era. Yeah, Bill Collins, wasn't he something? Yeah, and those other boys too. They were, they were wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. Did you meet Wayne Wilson? Yes, I did, actually. You uh, did? You I drove did. with him to Ipswich. Tell us this story. Yeah, we did. And I was as, I was as crook as 10 men that day. Um but I'd got I'd got become unwell on a, on the flight over, and I was with um, a journalist who was uh, uh, sort of taking me around the places, and he knew Wayne, and uh, and so yes, I got to call a race at Ipswich, and like quite honestly, I, I should nearly have been in hospital rather than there, but uh, yep, I, I did. I didn't do a very good job either, but uh, Sleepwalk won the race. I remember oh, that. Ah, Sleepwalk was a flying machine. Yeah, I think yeah, it was Des he, Burns. I think it might have been. Yeah, yeah, I think it might have been. But I was just happy to spit some names out and uh, and get and get it done. So, yeah, it wasn't a great experience for me. But uh, everyone else had made the decision before I had too much to say about it. So, hey, when the stuff gets going, the going gets tough, right? But when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And I had to do that, and I have had to do that on a few occasions when you're unwell. Just with the swearing thing, did that turn into a drama for you? No, no, no. Luckily, luckily not. Well, it wasn't um, your fault. No, but it wasn't my fault, but it wasn't his fault. He didn't know, and uh, he was just sitting there, you know, feeling a bit sorry for himself. But, uh, yeah, just the timing of that uh, was uh, was pretty incredible, really. Well, as you know, back in those days, and I used to listen to all the callers uh, when I wasn't on air down the line and get all the information, so I'd hear all the tracks around Australia, and things you'd hear, you know, that you couldn't say um, because the mics were open in the boxes and people would forget. You know, their mates would yeah. come up and they'd say, oh, what about this the other night at Mars or whatever? Yeah, <laughs> you know? I know. Yeah, I know. And, and you know, they're, you get the feel of their personal lives. And all that. They didn't know that these people were listening. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And from that time, actually, uh, you know, when I go to the broadcast now, the, the trackside buttons are always on for everyone, but I turn mine on and off, so uh, they can't, you know, because of that very reason, um, you know, I sort of dictate when I'm on air and, and when uh, when not, so people can or can't hear, yeah, it's good.
Yeah, I remember a story when I was very young and I was working at the harness races and one of the broadcasters at the time was having a bit of a dispute with a partner with the PA on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was having lunch, yeah. dinner downstairs, a steak, and I just charged up. I was skinny then and I could go very fast and I charged up to the box and I was out of breath. And uh, I said, the PA's on. <laughs> oh, just, you know, because I thought yeah. this is this could be disaster. You know? Yeah, and and would have been and would have been as they kept on going on and on. That has happened here as well. I didn't know when I first did the trials at Hut Park because I didn't have anyone uh, before I was calling. So that's pre the or during the same time I guess that on race night I used to get up under the under the stand and call into that uh, tape recorder. But uh, the trials sort of had two to four horses in it. it was really low key sort of stuff. But I didn't know that the microphone was broken and fixed on uh, at that place and we were up there. Um, talking away, whatever, and uh, I said, "Oh, there's that guy that owns all those shops that those ladies work at uh, down there <laughs> in Wellington." Uh, and yeah, we've got a fire. They came flying up the stairs to tell me that I shouldn't be talking about that sort of stuff, especially publicly. But I didn't know the microphone was on, and so there we go. That again, yeah. you know. And any incidents with you? You know, we've we've heard about David with the possums in Brisbane, David Fowler, and uh, you know the caller with the moth years ago that flew into his mouth with fifty to go, John yeah. Gilmore, all things like that. Have you had any un- anything unusual with over the years, Tony? Um, no, no, not too bad. I have had the moth. I have had or a big insect and, and flying into my mouth during a race call, and that's not a nice thing. Oh. No, you don't regurgitate there, but uh, <laughs> you sort of got to uh, you sort of got to carry on. But uh, more maybe surroundings like uh, fog and various things like that you can't see, and uh, rain that's so far on the windscreen that you can't open the window at all, and uh, so you try and call through a, a darkened window that's got rain on it, and uh, it just doesn't make sense when you put the binoculars up. There's just no picture at all. So those sort of little uh, those little things test you a little bit. But yeah, I've learned to go with the flow. You can do what you can do, and you can't do what you can't do. And uh, you just got to do your best. And if they want more than your best, they're being unreasonable. I know the callers over the years. You hear stories about you know they've been delayed in traffic. They can't make it to the race. They're panicking. If it's something like that with you, you know, oh. when you haven't made it in time or raced up at the yeah, last minute. I have. I have actually on a few occasions. I'm hopeless at uh, at time. Uh, and I'm always late. I'm always late, and uh, don't intend to be. But I have had um, uh, getting to New Plymouth from a, a place on the other side of the island. I had about a four-hour drive, and I had this old '68 Chevy Impala, and I got lost on the way over. Someone had told me a shortcut, and um, it wasn't a shortcut. And so I was trying to fly here, there, and everywhere. And those old Impalas, they had what a drum brake, and and they phased. If you're using them too much and you put your foot on the brake, the car goes any which way. Now, they're a pretty big old car. So I was flying all around the place. Uh, and when I got to New Plymouth, I see that they were still behind the barrier. Hadn't jumped in the first. I was just Radio Pacific, so I wasn't on course. So you had to scatter all the security and uh, and run up there. And then, of course, I've got no breath. So you try and talk when you're puffed. It's mission impossible. Uh, yeah, And that just happened just the other day. Again, I got traffic delayed and or houses going across bridges are just so, uh, yeah, and again, I was out of breath there, uh, but you just got to, I just turn everything off for a moment and try and get a breath to get some words out because it's nearly impossible to try and do that when you are out of breath, I can tell you that. Yeah, we've got a call here on our little tape that we keep with Paul Dolan one night. They locked Paul out of the box at Albion Park Greyhounds. So he had to run down to the office and then run back up. And he said to the announcer, a guy called Jeff Milne at the time in the studio, he said, no, I'll be right. I'll call this, Jeff. I'll get through it. And then Jeff crossed to him and he was, Paul was bucket. He said, that, yeah. he said out of the boxes, 200 to go. Yeah. yeah, he really struggled with that. But um, yeah, it's impossible. It's impossible. 
there's yeah. this famous story here many years ago. A guy used to call races down south. Bill Cherry was his name. And um, he was talking to his mate in the bar. He wasn't actually drinking, but he was talking to his mate. And his mate said, they just got ready to jump these horses. And he had to run quite a big distance and then up a few flights of stairs. So he got there. The race jump said, no noise, nothing at all. No commentary. <laughs> at all and they cross the line and I think this is very clever what he did and they cross the line and he turns the microphone on and he goes check test one two oh. <laughs> <laughs> so well done and the old man has a presence of mind to do that but uh, yeah those things can happen for sure, for yeah. sure. Yeah, Tony we talked about the early days and your opportunity at Hutt Park and you obviously graduated when did you start to get into the thoroughbreds um, it was when uh, Keith Hobb had uh, McGinty and Again, he went to the Japan Cup, and they didn't have anyone around about. And I'd been doing a few trial meet, a few race days by then, and uh, some people seemed to like it. So he uh, arranged for me to go north and call the meetings that that he couldn't. So um, a guy, Dean Knoll, who was the handicapper, was right on my shoulder, helping me all the way. And my first ever gallop school was way in the north at a place called uh, Ruakaka, which is uh, Tongarei. Yeah, with Donna Logan but, trained um, for years, of course. Yeah, on the beach. She did. Yeah, she did. Surf and turf, that's right. And uh, there might have been seven horses in the first race, and I think I only got about three of them out during, during the call. So, uh, um, you know, it was pretty average. But I had to, I had to learn it. I was keen, and uh, and and I did. And we've ended up where we've uh, ended up. So sometimes hard graft gets you places. And are there any other family members uh, nowadays that are, are keen to do what you've been doing, Tony, no. involved in racing? No. No, not really. Oh, I've got, uh, yeah, one of my sons is quite keen. He, he, he likes a bet and follows them that way. Uh, I've got four children, two crops, and uh, first croppers aren't, uh, they're not keen, but they're beautiful people and supportive of me. Uh, in fact, they're all going to be there on Saturday with their, uh, with my grandkids, four of them, Mokapuna, as we call them here. So that'll be special with um, four children and extended family there as well. So, uh, but no, no one else. Has, uh, has been uh, keen to, to, to take this role. They must have seen, you know, must have seen this. Not the best thing. I can't imagine what this is going to be like tomorrow for you and just the emotion and um, what's going to win the Wellington Cup uh, on the program. Can you give us a winner yeah, there? I don't know. I think I can, actually. I think uh, Waisaki um, can win it. He, he won it four years ago. He's, uh, then he went a miss. He sprung a tendon and he's been slowly, slowly targeted for this race. Uh, and uh, Alan Sharrick, who prepares them, is a, an outstanding conditioner. Uh, but they tread a very fine line with, a, with an injury like that that a horse has had under that extreme pressure of training, etc., to run the 3200. But his lead-up the other day was uh, a real red light on him there. And uh, he's been bet into uh, quite a strong favourite, $3.80. And uh, I think that he can do what Ed did when it uh, twice, but a couple of years apart. Waisaki, he's a nine-year-old by the same sire as very elegant Zed. And of mm. course, comeback jockey Matt Cameron and Alan Sharrick. So that's the last on the card. So it, it's, are you happy with that? I reckon you would be, wouldn't it? Go out on, in the, with the Wellington Cup, your final call, Tony? Yeah, I am happy with that. I'm happy. There is one race after that. Uh, which, uh, oh, the there is. is there, I can't, there is yeah. two. Sorry, the Juro Cup. Yeah. My apologies. And if you're in trouble, you can back one guy who there. But... Um, uh, Justin Evans, who's a guy I trained many years ago, actually, who learned the craft a little bit from me and then went into the wilderness and, and come back for the last five or six years, has been calling down south. Uh, we're a good man, uh, Craig Rail, uh, is uh, sort of down around that area as well currently. He's uh, been filling in for uh, Justin, but Justin's very proficient, very good, 
and very passionate. And uh, yeah, that, so they'll be left in good hands. The uh, the game with the the area that I called for sure. All right. So upon reflection, we heard some of your wonderful calls, and we're going to go out with Melody Bell the day that you called her. Uh, the first horse to ever win all three legs of that Triple Crown during the spring, as we said, the 1,400, the 16, and the, the 2,000. So what's one in particular? Is there one horse or one memory that you'll always think of upon reflection, uh, Tony? Yeah. yeah. Um, look, I'm not one to pat myself on the back too much, but uh, she was incredible, actually. Yeah, she just, just, just to go out and win in a no-nonsense no sort of a fashion, she was amazing. Uh, when Chris Johnson, who's been a, a good jockey, a troubled jockey over the years, but uh, he um, was uh, on the cusp of riding the most ever winners uh, for a rider here in this country. And uh, the day that he did it, a little place called uh, Woodville, and um, I was lucky enough to be able to pick it up halfway down when he was just starting to make his run and got there only just on the line. But uh, I was sort of saying that it was happening 100 metres out, and luckily I got that one. Right, so yeah, I'm, I'm quite proud of that one. Uh, Kenny Brown riding 100 Super Chase winners was pretty good. Uh, Castletown, Melody Bell, she was, uh, I, I just loved her as, a, as an animal, as I do the wolf generally. Um, yeah, she was amazing. Our Mace K, you played one of those earlier on. What a speed machine. And uh, I think he did run fourth or fifth in a flipper from a bad Well, day. he should have won it. That's a sore point with me because I thought he would mm. win it. But he ran fourth from the outside barrier, covering an extraordinary amount of ground. It was an amazing, that was mm. Flying Spurs year. That's right, okay, and Dittman wrote him, I think, did he? Yes, and, he did. Um, uh, and he, as you know, he's quite an uh, enforcer. Um, but uh, what a horse, and you know, that, there's a horse that wasn't shown in yearling parades or went to a yearling sale because he was so small and diminutive and nothing about him seemed appealing, and then he ends up being what he was. So, uh, yeah, he was uh, he was just so very, very fast. And those those other horses they capture your imagination and uh, and your heart and you go with it as well. So yeah, I'm lucky that I've been able to call so many good horses over such a, a long period of time. Um, I don't think it's a right. I think it's a privilege. And uh, to meet some of the other callers around the world uh, has been wonderful as well. I called a race at the old Hollywood Park one day and on a tour over there. Uh, as I said, Flemington, uh, called uh, at Hong Yep, switch. Don't forget Sleepwalk. I don't forget Sleepwalk. <laughs> I never forget Sleepwalk. Because that's what I think I must have been doing. I don't know what I've been up to before <laughs> then, but uh, <laughs> I was an average order. Uh, and I worked in Malaysia at uh, the Selangor Turf Club there in KL for a year and a half. After I had a bit of a fire up here, and um, uh, I really much enjoyed that. It was set up by a couple of uh, Aussie boys, Archinsons, I think, when they relocated the KL tractor there, and uh, that's as good a surface as you would ever see. So uh, I was a bit lucky there as well. Lovely. Thanks for the memories, Tony. Uh, pleasure. Thank you for uh, thank you for the chat. I enjoyed it. Tony Lee joining us this morning. His last day of broadcasting after almost 40 years. Wellington Cup Day tomorrow. Melody Bella length and a half in front. Mongolian Marshall runs on. Shadows cast Sultan of Swing and Windspell. But have a look at the darling of New Zealand turf. And Melody Bell does the double. She'll get it by about three lengths at the line. As per the script, this was easy. She looked to have a whole lot left here. He gave her a gorgeous run, presented her when he wanted, and then he put the foot on the accelerator and uh, she gets the first two legs of the Triple Crown and she's just simply the best. But what can you say about her? Eight group ones now. They just don't really do this that often, do they? She's just dominant. She's getting better, I know. To put them away in a twinkling, really, 
in a twinkling. Here she comes, Melody Bell. Opie Bosson's about to release her. Peso's fighting hard on the inside, but she's got the front now. Melody Bell from Peso, and they get right away from Crown Prosecutor. Here it comes, nine group one wins, and she is going to be dancing to her destiny. Melody Bell with the first ever triple crown. She's done it, creating history. She wins the triple crown. The first ever to do it, and she did it brilliantly. And has dominated, ladies and gentlemen. What a way to win the Triple Crown, what a way. Yes, Tony Lee, one of our special guests this morning on Racing HQ.